everyone. Welcome to On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Alex Kashtan, a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, I'm talking with Amanda Maxwell, who recently spoke at the Yale Conference on Sustainable Development in Latin America and the Caribbean. Amanda Maxwell is the director of the Latin America program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Her work includes promoting clean energy, cleaning up dirty fuels, improving air quality, and protecting wildlife and wild lands throughout Latin America. Thank you, Amanda, for speaking with me today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, so to start off, I have sort of a broad question. Um, you spoke at FES earlier today about um, why Latin America and the Caribbean matter in the world. Um, and so I wanted to know how you became inspired by this region and interested in working on uh, issues in Latin America. Oh, um, well, I, it was back to school, really. I started working, or um, excuse me, studying Spanish in like middle school, you know, like a lot of people in the U.S., um, and then continued in in college and had some really wonderful professors who were from the region who just, you know, we read literature and learned about cultures, and and I thought it was fascinating, and then I um, studied in Argentina, uh, in Buenos Aires, um, during my junior year abroad, and just fell in love with with the that country specifically in the city but but also the region you know the more I traveled the more I I loved it and um then I actually didn't uh return to Latin America for I don't know 10 years or so I actually moved to Europe lived in Europe for a while um and I got my master's degree in international politics and economics and I focused my research on um economic policies that countries could implement to um, encourage renewable energy. And um, at that time, I was looking more at um, like for, former Yugoslav states, but I started making connections with, with Latin America on that topic too. Um, and so then when I moved back to the US, I, I started working at NRDC where I, I get to, to, to work on that <laughs> now. Great. Um, another thing that you talked about uh, earlier today is the role of capital in an environmentally sustainable Latin America. And one thing that struck me was your comment um, that we don't need new financial institutions, but innovative approaches from current institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was interesting because I have some experience with the international um, climate policy world, and it seems like we just love making new institutions and new <laughs> yes. commissions and new working groups. Um, so it would be great if you could talk about that a little more and, and how maybe we already have the tools, but we just need to think about them a different way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, you know, it goes back to um, this idea that the financial system in in the region, in Latin America and the Caribbean, is already quite well-developed and, and very robust, and there's a lot of actors um, who exist 
And so the idea of creating a new institution to tackle, you know, these these new problems that we have or, or problems that are, you know, worse now than they were before, um, it just doesn't necessarily make sense, right? And the, the model that I was talking about today is the Green Bank model, which um, is something that was originally developed, this, this concept of a, you know, public um, authority, a public financial authority that uses very limited public funds to attract private investment into clean energy projects or green projects that just can't get traction financially for one reason or another. And they, you know, work both sides of that equation, um, both with the, the private capital as well as with the market development to, to create um, a, you know, sort of a, a deal, if you will, that works for everybody, right? That's not risky for private capital. And that really has been able to leverage these, these very small amounts of private of public funding to, to bring more private funding and crowd that in. Um, and these green banks originally started in, um, you know, very um, developed areas, developed countries, right? So the Connecticut Green Bank, the New York Green Bank, um, was originally the UK uh, Green Investment Bank, but has now been privatized. There's one in Australia, one in Japan. And these sort of the early leaders on this were all developed countries, right? And and they didn't have things like national development banks. So for them, they had to create a new institution, right? That would reduce risk to help boost economic performance um, and particularly focus it on, on climate or, or green projects. Whereas if you try to adapt that model in Latin America, where there already are so many national development banks, um, it just doesn't necessarily make sense, mm -hmm. right? Um, for, for several reasons. One, people are used to their national development bank. They trust it to a certain degree, right? They're, they're familiar with it. Um, the idea of creating a new one, you know, introducing a new actor is always a little... Um, risky because people don't know how to how to respond to that. But also, if you're talking about places with limited public funds, is it really the best use of those funds to create a whole new thing rather than just adapt maybe what already exists? Mm -hmm. And and in our conversations with different national development banks throughout the region is there's actually a real appetite among um, the people who work there to do more climate friendly investment and to look for more green projects. They just aren't quite sure how to do it within the structures that they have. Mm -hmm. Would you say that um, encouraging um, that type of investment is, is one of the biggest opportunities in Latin America and sustainable capital? Or are there other things that um, are really exciting happening in that space? I think that's one of the big ways, really, in, for climate projects, um, for mitigation projects. And a lot of the green bank work um, internationally and globally has been focused on, on the energy sector, I think, because that's, um, you know, sort of the first logical place to go when you're trying to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. It's also a sector where there's like a clear business model or business case, right, to be made for why investors can still get a good return. That model, that case becomes a little more difficult um, to develop in other sectors, right? So one big um, sector that I think is just fundamentally important in Latin America and the Caribbean that I mentioned today is water, right? And so trying to like figure out how a green bank can help finance water certainly something that can be done. It just takes a little more brain power at mm -hmm. this point, right? And I think there's similar areas, right, like agriculture, right, or um, conserving forests mm -hmm. and, and, and reforestation. Um, so 
I think it, there's a huge potential for this kind of tool. Um, it's just going to take a little while to develop, you know, again, the, the sort of like business case for mm-hmm. why this makes sense for private investors. Right. Um, so you touched on this just now, but I know that you um, also work on many topics in Latin America, including energy and wildlands and um, wildlife. Um, what are some of the, the challenges that you're facing on those issues, are, and are they related to the capital issues? What are you sort of seeing seeing there? Um, I think the one of the sort of biggest themes that we've seen that's that's a, you know a difficulty across all of these you know different topics that mm-hmm. we work on or sectors is um, this issue of. I don't even know how to categorize it. It's kind of psychological. Um, but how to change people's way of thinking because we're operating in a new reality, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of problems um, stem from people just being used to doing things the way they've always done them. Um, and that's, you know, everything from, like, managing a watershed, right, and allocating water rights, Um this is something we, we see in our work in the metropolitan region around Santiago, um, Chile, is they have this very complex management system for the Maipo Basin, which supplies 80% of the population in Santiago mm-hmm. with water. Um, but the, the glacially fed, the, it's a glacially fed um, basin, right? So the, the glaciers are drying up, they're mm-hmm. melting, um, and the aquifers are all over depleted, um, but they're still allocating water rights and people are still consuming water as if it was 20 years ago. And so how the, the biggest problem really is you have these, these processes and these systems that are just entrenched across urban areas, rural areas, it doesn't matter. And how do you get people to change the way they think about things given that we, you know, some actions are just more urgent now than they ever were before. Definitely. Do you have any um, success stories in changing old patterns of behavior? Oh, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I would say that you know, the, some of the, the best successes in that way happen, unfortunately, because of crises, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So um, in, you know, a lot of times energy efficiency is um, something that people use when there's blackouts, right? When there's, for some reason, they don't have energy efficiency all, or they don't have electricity. All of a sudden, the government says, everyone, we need, everyone needs to, <laughs> to ration their energy mm-hmm. use. Um, and it really shouldn't be that way, right, logically, because energy efficiency is like, you know, quote unquote, the low hanging fruit. It's Mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive to implement. People should be doing it anyway. But um, you don't really see behavior changes until there's a crisis of some Mm -hmm. sort, which is, you know, very unfortunate. Yeah, we've definitely seen the same thing in the U.S. with hurricanes and coastal resilience. And it seems to be just a human issue. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. All over the world. so to finish up, um, just looking at another aspect of your work, mm-hmm. um, I know that you work on U.S. federal policy and how that impacts Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could discuss NRDC's role in the recent U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement and mm-hmm. what it means for Latin America. Yeah, sure. It's um, something <laughs> the USMCA or, or NAFTA 2.0, as some people mm. like to call it, <laughs> um, you know, it, the original NAFTA was terrible.
terrible for the environment. Just mm. <laughs> just to start off, <laughs> like let's set our baseline, right? It was sure. really, really bad. Um, and, and that's because there is a link between trade and climate change and trade and environmental impacts and trade and social impacts, right? So like trade agreements by definition are trying to encourage the increased production of goods and services between countries and among countries, and that means, you know, increasing the transportation costs between and among them and increasing where factories are built. And um, so, you know, that increase that's being encouraged is generating more greenhouse gases. It's generating more environmental impacts. It's impacting communities, you know, either via via um, the fact that now, now factories are being built in their communities um, and they have to deal with the pollution, or, you know, maybe they're, they've lost jobs or they're gaining jobs, right? Um, that said, it doesn't have to be bad, right? Trade agreements can be written in a way to not only you know, avert these impacts, but actually like, you know, make trade much mm. better for climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for, for NRDC, one of our primary concerns with the USMCA is that this is the first trade agreement the United States has that's being renegotiated. It's being renegotiated in, with, you know, our two closest partners, right, um, that have huge, huge economic impacts across all of these, th- these two borders. Um, and it doesn't mention climate change once Mm -hmm. right and for the 21st century that's just not that's not acceptable (laughs) um and and so in addition to the host of other environmental deficiencies that was our biggest concern right how can you write a trade agreement that protects climate right and actually helps fight climate change and it can be done um but this one doesn't and um so that that's that's one problem we see. And, and another, sort of the other pieces of it that we really fundamentally disagree with are, um, you know, the fact that it's still, it doesn't set any regulations or standards for air, um, land, and um, water, <clears throat> excuse me, pollution or quality. Mm-hmm. And that's really bad because we've seen, a, you know, <laughs> A lot of the talk around USMCA or NAFTA has been about, you know, Americans losing their jobs because everyone's going to Mexico. Um, but that also means not only are jobs moving there, but so is the pollution. And Mexico has much lower standards for, for water quality, for example. Um, and so the people in Mexico are, are suffering from this, right? Communities are suffering from this. Um, and that's, that's a real problem. That's not what we want out of these trade agreements. So that's, that's one problem. Another one is that um, there's this thing within trade agreements called the Investor um, State Dispute um, system, which is ISDS, which is basically like when a a company has an investment in the other country um, and they don't like something about the way that other country is is managing their investment or allowing or blocking their investment, um, they can take it to this sort of private tribunal um, and receive millions of dollars in damages that come from taxpayer money. And that was part of the original NAFTA, and it, it was really terrible um, and resulted in, in a lot of problems environmentally and, and among communities. Um, and fortunately, a good thing about the USMCA is it got rid of this ISDS system between um, the US and Canada. It got rid of it between the US and Mexico, except for um, five sectors. And these five se- sectors include 
basically the most polluting sectors, right? Mm -hmm. So energy generation and exploration, transportation, infrastructure, and, and several others. So the fact that those sectors are preserved um, in, this, in this new trade agreement is also really um, disappointing. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, this is a, a 180 from that, mm. that last comment, but one thing we, we always like to finish up with with our podcast guests is asking super broad in, in the environment right now, what is something that makes you really optimistic or hopeful? Um, so I don't know if this is the most inspirational thing, but it, it is something that I found inspiring recently, um, which was I was at the at COP25 in, in Madrid, which was sort of universally panned for being a failure <laughs> um, and, and universally panned for the just blatant lack of, of government ambition in the face of all of this mounting pressure and scientific evidence that we need more ambition. Um, and, you know, watching these governments just fail at what we need them to do was really depressing. But the flip side of that was everyone else at this conference is doing amazing work, right? And, and um, you know, everyone from international financial institutions to NGOs to subnational governments, I mean, people everywhere else seem to get it. And they, they have been stepping up and they were talking about these, you know, just really amazing work that's being done. And then all of that was sort of underlined by this huge amount of energy coming from the youth movement there, right? And the indigenous communities mm -hmm. that were there. Um, so I, find, I found that to be quite inspirational. Great. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. That does it for this episode. Thanks again to Amanda Maxwell for joining the podcast. You can find out more about the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy at envirocenter.yale.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Yale Enviro.